Hi everyone and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every week. I'm Henry and back with me today I've got Jess Farmery and a first appearance for Adama Barry as well as special guest Grant Nolan from MyOpNotes. Jess, Adama, how's what feels frankly like the billionth week of January been for you both? Yeah, it's been a great week for me. Um, a real highlight of my week was going to a Women in Health Technology panel discussion event um, hosted by Bristos um, and got to listen to some really inspiring women doing making some really big moves forward in the world of developing therapeutics and health tech specifically for female patients. So yeah, that was a really inspiring event. Sounds amazing. Adam, how about you? My week was good. Um, it feels like I can't believe it's Friday, but um, yeah, it was fun. It was interesting. Started a lot of new things, and yeah, first first appearance on the podcast, which is exciting. Um, yeah, good week. How about you, Grant? Yeah, all good. Um, like you say, it does feel like the the millionth week of January. My bank balance is really suffering, so I've just been <laughs> limping over the line towards towards payday at the moment. Um, but no, it's, it's all been fine. I had a bit of nice annual leave for, uh, saved up from around Christmas, so it's been a very relaxing time. Nice. Yeah, it's definitely we're in kind of um, rice and beans territory payday wise, which is good. You know, it's a nice feeling. Um, all right. Rather than discussing January diets, shall we have a little look at our first story? First story this week comes to us from First Word Health Tech, and that is researchers develop AI tool Sybil to predict lung cancer risk. It's a great name for it. Grant, you wanted to have a little uh, little talk to us about uh, Sybil and the impact it could have on predicting lung cancer. Uh, yeah, it was, I thought it was a really interesting paper and just talking about how they can potentially um, estimate risk of lung cancer from a single CT scan. So not using any clinical data, it basically cuts out everyone apart from uh, a radiologist needing a, needing a low-dose CT scan and then was able to predict who was going to go on to develop lung cancer. So pretty pretty crazy you know, futuristic stuff there saying like with, with a high degree of accuracy could, could address that. So yeah, it'd be really interesting to see what, where they take it. They're planning to do a, a trial going forward. So I don't know, maybe maybe we don't need to be taking histories. Maybe we could just do a scan. What's, the, what's currently used to predict? Is there anything that's currently used to predict lung cancer in patients? Not that I'm aware of. I think we just kind of muddling, you know, risk factors like smoking and background, things like that. Maybe some, but I don't think there's any kind of tool that I know out there. I'm probably not the right type of doctor to to be able to describe it fully, but <laughs> in plastic surgery, plastic. no, we don't have a risk factor <laughs> for uh, lung cancer. <laughs> I, did, I did look for plastic surgery stories for you this week. Uh, and unfortunately, it's been a slow news week for plastic surgery. So... Apologies, but yeah, it's an interesting. Um, it's inter- I can't. The only other predictive tool I could think of for lung cancer at the moment is just going around the smoking areas of office buildings and just being like, probably you guys. Um, I feel comfortable saying that as an ex-smoker. Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have minded when I was a smoker if someone had said that to me. It says in the article that the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force recommends that adults aged fifty to eighty who've smoked twenty a day for a period of their life unless they've quit more than 15 years ago have a a low dose ct every year but obviously that creates a lot of cts there's 350 odd million people in the states there's a lot of people who smoke those cts don't necessarily get processed particularly quickly so this is a really great way of making sure that people who 
could potentially have their life saved by early intervention um, get the treatment that they need early because a little bit of AI can do it. Um, whether or not AI is the future of uh, radiology is something that we've debated on this podcast before, and I think we'll we'll likely debate on the podcast again. But good to see the advancement coming from the excellently named Sybil. Yeah, definitely. Our next story comes to us from the excellently titled healthcaredive.com. So the article is how technology will shape healthcare in 2023. Experts share predictions for virtual care, AI, the digital health market and data privacy this year. Now, there have been a lot of these, a lot, a lot, a lot of what's going to happen in 2023 articles. And broadly speaking, the best way to work out what's going to be in the what's going to happen in 2023 articles is to find the what's going to happen in 2022 articles because most of them seem to have just been cut and pasted which is um not necessarily indicative of an, of, uh, an industry that's moving forwards particularly fast but never mind what are your own predictions before we dive into the article uh grant do you have any particular predictions that you think might happen over the next 12 months any changes you think we'll see I do wonder about, I feel like the chat box AI is coming on really quite in leaps and bounds. So I wonder whether we're going to see it, you know, chat GPT being used for more than just LinkedIn posts and actually for some kind of medical stuff. I don't know that that was something I I really, what with it passing like exam results and stuff like that, it does seem like it's been a lot more honed, but how we'll actually manage to get it in or whether we'll get, you know, the evidence to say we can is another thing entirely. It'll be really interesting to see at what point ChatGPT or any other AI chat tool can start to pass pretty much all of the Turing tests and become as human as a human. Because I think there are huge applications in care. We were talking, was it last week on the podcast or the week before, about a third of or a third to a sixth of GP appointments could basically be avoided if that person didn't feel so lonely. Um, so loneliness in the elderly is a huge factor in GPs having appointments that don't necessarily lead to treatment, but just lead to interaction. And if you can get ChatGPT or a similar tool to ape the experience of having a carer there full time in terms of conversation, then I think there's a very good chance that we're going to start to see that get rolled out across the care sector and others. Jess, Adam, do you have any thoughts on what 2023 might bring? More of the same? More excitement? Um, Well, this is something which I'm sure does get said every year. Um, But I feel like this year, with the pressure that hospitals are facing, the shortage of beds, um, the ambulance strikes, the like huge waits to see GPs, I think we are, it's like never been a more important time for technology to support out of hospital, in community, in home care. So that's like virtual um, care technologies, um, at home monitoring technologies, um, and solutions that can help medics and support patients yeah, from, the, from, from their own homes rather than them having to be in hospitals unnecessarily to be monitored or treated. Um, so yeah, I think that's going to be something which there's going to be a massive imperative to develop, invest in, um, increase the use of this year. So you're thinking like virtual wards? Virtual wards is something, yeah, that every year people say is going to like take off this year. Um, and I don't think like full virtual wards, it doesn't necessarily have to be that. I think it's going to be any kind of like apps or monitoring technologies um or just even like community health intervention projects that support people to stay healthier in their own homes so preventative 
um, solutions, preventative programs and technologies. I feel like virtual wards has the same vibe as that like teenage footballer who everyone thinks is going to come good at some point and they like occasionally they have a really good game but most of the time everyone's just like yeah he'll, he'll come good he'll come good and then at like 26 he goes off to play for Luton um that's that's my horribly cynical view of virtual wards I'm very sorry um okay Adam how, how about you yeah um, I think similar to Grant as well, I do think um, AI is going to be really big. And I think it's going to be kind of exciting to see like how AI will be implemented to support like nurses and everything, because everything we've been seeing in the news and things. So seeing how technology is really going to make an impact on people, as opposed to just being really cool online thing. I agree. The article talks about this being an inflection point for AI. And I think that's a really important, uh, important thing to know. They've got Google's chief clinical officer, Michael Howell, predicting that. So it's a, a fairly decent prediction. Um, yeah, the article talks about this being an inflection point for AI and machine learning. Um, it is probably time that we start to see some really good quality evidence. There's now years worth of evidence that can be presented um, it's never going to replace doctors, nurses, clinicians, anyone working in a clinical setting. But if it can augment their work, support them, this could be a big year for AI. Um, and if you'd like to hear me say that again, you can tune in next year when we talk about our 2024 predictions <laughs> and the year after that and every year until I die. Uh, right. <laughs> Any more on AI? So I think they've even in Manchester, they've started actually using bits on radiology. So there's, there's some stuff I've been hearing about them using it to, to look at things like chest x-rays, but so far the people's response to it has, hasn't been great. And it's been not doing as well as I think people would have hoped, but I guess it's a starting point. And maybe, you know, once it's actually in clinical practice, we'll see that, that data build up and things like that. But yeah, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see. There's been a couple of posts on LinkedIn recently by clinicians talking about how, whilst this tech is amazing, uh, and all health tech is amazing, if it just creates extra work rather than augments and supports the work that clinicians are already doing, then it's, well, it's functionally useless. Um, I don't know, Grant, have you ever come across tech where you felt like this is great, but actually it's just, it's just as quick for me to do it myself, or it's actually quicker for me to do whatever the tech does? Yeah, so we got this new referral system recently, which was looking at how uh, it was basically asynchronous chat. But one of the big things in plastics is we like to see a photo of the wound. It didn't have the ability for that and you couldn't send an x-ray. And it was like, we just got a posh version of WhatsApp here. And before we used <laughs> to at least talk on the telephone and we could get it done in one session. So, yeah, that was um, that was that was difficult. And, and that was kind of branded as as like, you know, this is going to be great. It's going to make your life easier. And we just replaced the bleep for a phone which beeps and yeah it's um not quite there yet yeah i i'm i wouldn't be surprised if there are medics up and down the country just nodding at that anecdote it's uh, sadly not uncommon let's move on to our next story Our next story comes to us from businesscloud.co.uk, and that is UK health tech nets 7.5 million to tackle drug overdoses. Jess, you've been looking into this. Yeah, so actually having looked into this story a little bit, I found that that headline is slightly misleading. 
Um, but it's a really cool piece of technology and it will have an impact on treating people who suffer from drug overdoses. Um, so let me explain um, this story in a bit more detail. Um, so it's a Scottish company called Numo Wave, and they have raised a 7.5 million Series A round. Um, and their technology, their technology is being developed as part of an international research project. So they've got the University of Dundee involved. Um, they've got University of Glasgow. They've got Kings in London, and even the Department of Health in Victoria, Australia, um, are involved in this tech development. Um, and so they've developed a small chest-worn biosensor, um, which continuously captures patient data. Um, and that feeds this into algorithms that detect a range of respiratory adverse events in real time. Um, and this data can be viewed um, on a cloud platform so clinicians can remotely monitor patients and provide personalised treatment. Um, so the reason why the whole drug overdose headline came about is because one of the main uses um, for this technology is to monitor patients um, who are taking opioids um, um, because opioids are part, affect part of the brain that controls breathing. Um, and sometimes this can lead to patients developing a condition known as opioid-induced respiratory depression, which is O-I-R-D. Um, and if, it, if this condition can be identified early enough, then um, patients can be saved from developing complications, having to go into hospital, even potentially dying. Um, so that's so this technology, um, this chest warm biosensor, um, can alert clinicians um, before yeah the condition becomes serious for patients at risk patients who are taking opioids, and yeah obviously this is there's a massive need for this and a massive market because um, between 1999 and 2019 in the USA alone nearly half a million people died from overdoses involving opioids. And in Scotland, um, that was 1,330 people died from drug overdoses involving opioids in 2021. So, yeah, very um, interesting new technology. Um, and it was yeah interesting for me to dig into that story a bit more deeply. I saw in, the, in some of the press material that um, Numa Wave had put out around the fundraise that they are looking to grow in the US, um, which makes complete sense because the opioid crisis is huge in the US. Yeah, And although it, like, it is a growing problem in Scotland and in the UK, the rest of the UK, um, I can imagine that the US is where the big market for this kind of product is going to lie. One of the weirdest things that came out when we were researching this is how underinvested this section of the market is. Jess, did you you found like a, an addressable market size for this? Wasn't it a couple like forty billion or something? Um, it was half a million people um, died from drug overdoses involving opioids um, in the USA between nineteen ninety nine and twenty nineteen. Right, and I think someone somewhere when we were looking at this. So the huge number of people, and we, when we were looking at, I think Fierce Biotech did an article on the num the amount of investment that goes into this sector, and relative to the amount of money it could save healthcare systems, it's really low. And if you go and search for raises in this area in the last couple of years, it's uh, there's scant pickings. Do you any of you have any inkling as to why why that might be? I mean, possibly because the crisis has only escalated kind of in the past decade. Um, so it might just be that people are like working on these kind of products and technologies, but they've not quite reached their like go to market point yet. That could be one reason. I guess another thing is it's about that, that socioeconomic kind of bias as well, because, you know, if, if you are a drug addict with 
at potential risk of overdose, you're more likely to be homeless. You know, you're going to have much less um, time with your, uh, you know, political uh, influence on your MP and things like that. So I guess there must be a huge thing like that. And you think where the money really tends to go is things which generally affect richer people. So, you know, people who die um, with a, a big cause, for example, people who go down with cancer come down quite quick. And that's why it tends to get loads of funding because they can get up and say about how this is a massive problem that needs to be funded. But I, I you know, in an underdeprived group like people at risk of overdoses, I, I guess it's really hard to, to know how big the problem is and to actually try to kind of address that because it's just under the radar. Yeah, I also think that people tend to have less sympathy for people who have drug addictions and things like that. So like you said, money would probably go into something more like cancer and things like that, as opposed to somebody suffering with a drug addiction, because they just feel like maybe people feel like they put them in that position. So why should funding or money go into that, which isn't really fair. But I think humans as well, a bit of a bit of the problem here, too. I think there's definitely bias here. And that is always going to influence investors decisions because, well, because frankly, if it doesn't look like it's going to make money because the problem is not well uh, well talked about or is not well thought of or is not well um, covered by uh, governments and their regulations, then it's unlikely that that's ever going to go stratospheric in terms of value. Just to, Can I just add on that? But also you think if you're trying to build a business model around addiction. So if you're trying to build like a business model around addiction, they're less likely to be able to you know, pay for that service and things like that. Whereas you know, healthcare, healthcare, which is privatised in America, is, is even less likely to, to fund that. I don't think it's, it's covered on insurance and stuff. So it's tricky to, to, to raise investment and build a business around an area like that, where there's just not the funding and not the money and not really a clear business model, I guess. Yeah, 100%. And that makes their raise even more impressive. Um, so good luck to them. And hopefully this is something that we will see more money going to. Yeah, I think it's interesting to note that this is a Scottish company um, receiving some funding in the life sciences sector. And that is a trend which I'm seeing a lot of recently. Um, There seems to be a lot of funding going towards um, health tech and biotech and life science companies in Scotland. Um, So I don't know if that's just a peculiarity for end of 2022, start of 2023, or whether that's like a sign of growth in that sector in Scotland. Um, But yeah, something to watch. All right. Well, it's been a reasonably uh, depressing start to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast in terms of what we've covered. So shall we move on to something that's a bit more good newsy? This comes to us from femtechworld.co.uk. Biotech startup announces first patient enrolled in endometriosis clinical trial. That can only be good news. Jess. Yeah, so first, shout out to Femtech World, which is a really great website to go and find um, opinion pieces and news on everything Femtech. Um, Really great website. Um, So yeah, this this is a real good news story. So for anyone who doesn't know what endometriosis is, um, it's a condition in which tissue similar to that which normally lines the uterus um, grows somewhere which is not the uterus. So um, this can cause a lot of pain, very painful condition, especially when you're having your period. Um, and it can also it's also a major cause of um, infertility for women. 
um, and up to 190 million women are um, expected to be affected by this globally, so a huge chunk of the population. Um, but despite this, women wait an average of eight years um, and over, have to have over 10 doctor visits um, to be diagnosed with this condition. Um, so obviously there's a huge need for more effective technologies um, and methods to diagnose the condition. Um, which is why it's great news that Hero Biotech, um, a US startup, have enrolled their first patient in their diagnostic study in Houston, in Texas. Um, and they've developed a test which is called uh, MetriDX. Um, and it's a non-surgical test which analyzes cells obtained from the patient's endometrium um, and uses this um, analysis to um, yeah, diagnose them with endometriosis. Um, so this should hopefully accelerate that um, eight-year diagnosis period, which is currently, um, yeah, which women currently have to go through, and hopefully should cut down the ten doctors' visits, which like seems absolutely ridiculous, and like, um, yeah, they don't should have to go through that many doctors' visits. Um, and they've also raised two million pounds, two million dollars in seed funding, um, and they're currently raising Series A. So. Yeah, definitely one to watch and it'll be great to see when they bring this product to market. Yeah, I just think it's so good, like, because there's nothing worse than knowing something is wrong with you, but not knowing what is wrong with you and having to go through 10 hospital doctor, doctor's visits to find out what's wrong. Like, I could, it just seems like agony and something that causes you daily pain like that should be way easier to diagnose. I can't believe this isn't, like, a thing now but it's really good that it's happening now because so many women are suffering essentially every single day in so much pain when it could be much quicker and easier to diagnose so yeah I'm all for this. Yeah I was also um, doing a bit of research to see if any UK startups were working on any diagnostic technologies for endometriosis um, and I came across a company called Dot Lab. Um, who have got a product called DotEndo, which is a blood test. Um, so rather than taking cells and analysing those, this um, takes blood from the patient and measures biomarkers um, to identify active endometriosis. Um, so yeah, it seems like it's not just in the US where there's some great progress being made in endometriosis diagnostics. There's also some progress being made here in the UK as well. That's really good. That's really positive, I think, and necessary. Well, that's... Uh... A fascinating story and hopefully this will uh well provide relief for a lot of a lot of people it's about 190 million people i saw from the world health organization have endometriosis worldwide which is not an insignificant number by any stretch let's move on to our last piece this is uh comes to us from technologyreview.com um, which is a great place actually for finding kind of summary stories across a range of different tech areas, not just healthcare and biotech. Um, organs on demand, 10 breakthrough technologies for 2023. Uh, there's 10 here, three of them are from health tech and biotech. And the one we're particularly interested in is organs on demand. Grant, uh, talk to me about organs on demand. This is this is the dream. You know, if we can just grow some organs in labs or in, in animals and, and implant them, gosh, that saves, saves and solves so many issues. So yeah, I think I think it's been talked about for a while, and there's an interesting TED talk on it and things like that. So uh, it's more a prediction. This I don't know if there was too much like new data in it. It talked a bit about the man um, who had the pig heart implanted in in America, um, but 
yeah, it's uh, I mean, can you imagine if we could just print organs and put them into people? It would, you know, you imagine have, have huge trauma or something like that, print a new organ, just get on with things. It would, it would really, really revolutionize things. But I guess there's still a lot more challenges to go, which maybe this article kind of glosses over. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a cool area and would be one to definitely watch. Yeah, it does. It starts off talking about the uh, the pig's heart. Uh, David Bennett, who had the pig's heart in his chest for two months because uh, he had, uh, I think, arrhythmia was the issue that he had. Um, and it was the only thing they could do to try and keep him alive. And it did work for a few months. Um, it is, it's very, um, there's almost a black mirror angle to this. It almost feels a little bit, a little bit dark, but also very exciting at the same time. Um, so, Jess, Adam, do you have anything on growing organs? Um, I think this would be a very kind of encouraging piece of news for anybody who is on the organ donor waiting list or has friends and family on the organ donor waiting list. Because I know that those lists are long and being on them must be like stressful, traumatic um, experience. So I think anything which can kind of offer a bit of hope or light at the end of the tunnel for people on these lists. There's obviously a lot of editing that goes into these. With the pig heart, they have to remove certain sugars that are part of the tissue to create sort of specially bred pigs for this. And there are there are ethical implications that come up as well in terms of growing animals to be transplant donors. But it's an exciting area, and MIT seem to think that this is going to be um, a, a future growth area. I recommend reading it, not just for the article itself, but there's a piece that it links to. Um, which is uh, Martin Rothblatt, who runs a startup in the States, who are, the idea is to create almost like organ factories where you do grow greenhouses worth of organs for people, um, for the 100,000 people who are on the transplant waiting list in the US alone at the moment, Um, which is a very exciting piece that came out uh, earlier on this year, I think about three weeks ago now. So yeah. Have a look at the MIT piece and uh, find the link at the bottom that will take you through to what might be the future of growing organs in a barn. Final story this week. So final story comes to us from Kavanagh Health, who have released their latest white paper. Nick, we had on the podcast last week, uh, and they've been looking at how talent strategy can help startups attract better talent, but also in a difficult market, better investment. Um, I had a little read through this morning uh, with my with my coffee. It wasn't coffee, it was green tea. I've run out of coffee, that was depressing. Um, it's fantastic. It's got Will Gibbs from Octopus Ventures in it as a case study. It talks about how having a robust talent strategy and linking that to your commercial goals and the future of your company is a really, really good way of, uh, of raising investment and shows those early stage investors, you know, seed, pre-seed, pre-seed, series A, that, you know, you are looking at talent as the best and most expedient way to grow your business. So highly recommend having a look at that. Uh, it's on all their socials at the moment. Any notes, any thoughts on talent strategy from anyone? Does it, um, does the white paper give the the magic trick into how to attract the best talent and retain the best talent? Or is it just telling you that you ought to do it? Uh, as every startup knows, the magic trick to retaining and attracting the best talent is a table tennis table and uh, free beers on a friday um this is the this is the model that worked for every startup from 2011 to 2020 all right so that uh, with that we're going to wrap up the news this week but grant why don't you tell us a little bit more about my op notes the company that you've set up yeah so uh, my op notes is so i'm a i'm a plastic surgery registrar in the nhs and 
my up notes is suggesting a problem to do with operation notes. So um, at the moment, that that's like a medical legal document which explains exactly what's occurred during operation, who's involved in the next steps in the treatment plan. And at, at the moment, in my hospital anyway, we still handwrite them. And it's the same in about 40% of NHS hospitals and another 40% just use basic word processing. Uh, and there's just loads of problems with that. So all the, all, firstly, my handwriting is pretty bad um, and my colleagues aren't much better. So often we don't know exactly what's happened and that's a communication problem with, with nurses and physios on the wards. Um, and then also the, the data that actually is on those operation notes is it, just siloed on that piece of paper. So 97% of data at the moment is not used um, for, for research and all that we wouldn't need to do trials anymore if we could just amalgamate that data into you know data sets. And the last thing is about is about costs. So hospitals get reimbursed by um, producing an OPCS code, which basically is a code for exactly what operation they've done. And we know from operation notes at the moment about 20% of those are inaccurate. So really the, the way that operation notes are written at the moment is provides bad care, it's inability to do uh, any research and audit, and it's also really risky and expensive. We created a platform that streamlines writing operation notes for surgeons, automatically captures all data for research and audit, and improves hospitals' abilities to get reimbursed for the surgeries they perform. Amazing. And where are you, are you rolling it out, first of all, in plastic surgery? Are you going specialty by specialty, or are you looking at trust by trust? How's the, um, how are you planning to grow my op notes? Yeah, so at the, at the moment we're, we're doing some pilots um, in two hospitals. We've just been accepted into the NHS Clinical Entrepreneur Programme and we've been accepted onto a, a digital health accelerator, which I'm not allowed to um, say which one until Tuesday. Um, and so, so things are kind of building momentum. We're starting to get more and more traction. You know, surgeons really, really want to use this tool just to solve, solve this massive problem and save them time, let them deliver better care. Um, but yeah, we're still in the early stages, but the, it's exciting to see like the momentum building and sort of where it's heading at the moment. I know from, from nerding out over our audience analytics for this podcast that we do have quite a few NHS listeners. Um, if someone wants to get in touch with you because they've experienced exactly the same problem, which is going to be most people who work in secondary care, um, What's the best way of getting in touch with you to talk about my op notes and how it might be able to help a trust? Uh, probably the best way is either to email me or you can catch me on LinkedIn. Um, so yeah, either of those would be great and be great to chat. I, th- I think it could really help help surgeons and I think it you know it's got huge benefits and, and our, our own team have seen that and yeah, I really really would like to see it actually helping other people as well. Yeah, we'll put uh, we'll put Grant's contact details in the description of this episode. Um, and best of luck with my op notes um, and with the accelerator that you can't tell us about yet. But I'm sure we'll have you back on soon to tell us about it once you are allowed to talk about it. All right. Well, that's everything from this week's Health Tech Pigeon. All of the news and opinions that you could possibly need from a week's worth of health tech. We'll be back next week with another special guest. But from me, Jess, Adama and Grant, thanks for joining. <laughs>